Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers Podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com. Welcome to the season finale of the Visitors Podcast, where we're discussing all things for all mankind on Apple TV+. I'm your host, Louis Ryan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mike Levito. Hello, hello. Mike, how are you? Well, I had some issues this morning when I went to go fly my, uh, my, my spaceship to get to work, and it just did not work. I was just hovering outside of my house for, for hours and hours. Oh, Mike, I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, looks like we're running out of time, based on your anecdote. So let's just skip ahead. Mike, we have a special guest in the building today, the building where we record our podcast. Are you excited about it? I am. Yeah, it's a very special person. You might remember from the last season of our podcast, Mr. Lars Emerson. Hi, Louis. Hi, Mike. Long, long time no chat. Yeah, it's been a while. Where have you been? Up in the vast reaches of the cosmos? <laughs> the moon. The moon. Wow. Speaking of the moon, Mike, are you excited about these last two episodes we're going to talk about today? I am. I think I think these are probably my two favorite episodes of the season. Certainly the last one is, especially because the last two we talked about we thought were both kind of like the, the low points. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed revisiting these. Yeah, it's definitely an explosive finish to a very uh, outstanding first season, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it with you. So, um, why don't we just get right into it and break down episode nine of season one. Uh, Mike, what, what's sort of the big idea in this episode? So it's titled Bent Bird, which is evidently a slang term for a, uh, I guess, any kind of vehicle that's not working. Because what happens is they finally loaded up Apollo 24. Uh, they're ready to go to the moon and relieve Ed of his duties and get him back home. Uh, the crew of Apollo 24 includes Ellen Wilson, Deke Slayton, and Harry Lou. Uh, there's lots of build-up to them launching. They get up out into uh, Earth orbit, and they're ready to punch the ignition, fly to the moon, but the ignition does not work. They're just sitting there um, floating above Earth, and that prompts the necess- uh, Apollo 25 to go up early, essentially, and help uh, replace a part on, uh, the, on Apollo 24, and that crew consists of Molly Cobb, Tracy Stevens, and a character named Dennis, who I don't know that we've seen before. Um, but he's played by Charlie Hoffheimer, who played Abe Drexler in Mad Men. And so, yeah, the story is them trying to fix that, and then what happens once they do fix it? Because uh, things don't go as planned. No, in a, in a shocking revelation for this universe's version of NASA, things don't go quite as <laughs> planned. The, the booster of the rocket, I guess, ignites, and it, it wasn't supposed to, and then they're just shooting off at something like more than 60 miles an hour off into the vast reaches of space. Harrison Liu gets burned to a crisp, yes. much like how the alien does at the end of <laughs> Alien. Yeah. Um, and they're just rocketing off into uh, 
uh, Apollo 24 is rocketing off into the vast reaches of space with absolutely no way to be in contact with uh, mission control down in NASA. And to make it even things even worse, Molly, who was working on the ship, is now also floating around in space. And so Apollo 25 uh, has to try and save Molly, and without burning fuel, because they, they didn't bring up that much fuel, because they were just kind of expecting to go up and come back down, they have to try to save Molly, and it kind of leads to this uh, ethical dilemma of, do we risk the lives of two astronauts to save the life of one? Um, which I think kind of leads to like the most thrilling sequences of this episode, uh, the, the the Molly rescue attempt. Just going back to because the decision sort of is on uh, Margot's shoulders because mm-hmm. she's sort of like the lead down in ground ground control. And there's this moment where it's like she has to make the decision of like whether they're gonna go after Molly or not. And then like everything like slows down into like a slideshow frame, and then it's like Margot's eating her tootsie roll. Yes, and she's like. We're gonna we're gonna leave Molly behind, mm-hmm. and I thought it's like wow that's exciting. And then um the whole part where they're trying to uh, go after Molly it's uh, very exciting. It reminded me a lot of that film um, Gravity, yeah by uh, Alfonso Cuarón, and it's just uh, really really exciting. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, lots of Gravity vibes. But if instead of letting George Clooney float off into space, Sandra Bullock was somehow able to to come to his rescue. It's also this great moment because um Tracy is sort of the pilot. Mm-hmm. going after molly and um gordo gordo's the one sort of helping her talk through it and it's like their marriage has been kind of on the rocks so it's like they have this nice little moment where they're you know they they realize like they need each other in order to do this and they manage to uh go try to go after molly who's floating off into deep space yeah and there's some line where it's something like don't do anything stupid and he's like well you married me didn't you it's like this sort of like Ah, what, what 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 great dialogue! <laughs> <laughs> That's how like, people talked back then, Mike. Apparently. Well, I'm, I was gonna say it's like it's like '90s movie dialogue, but this is like the '70s, so like they're 20 years ahead of time. <laughs> that that is true. I don't um, know, and it's it's they do a good job making it seem very scary. Because I don't know about you, but I would be like the part when Molly floats off, and it's like the um the dark side of Earth. Like yeah. at the point where the sun is being blocked by Earth, it's like it's very scary. It reminded me of like when she goes down into the crater mm-hmm. a few episodes ago, and it's like no sunlight can get in here. She just like yeah, it's very. I couldn't imagine like uh, where it's like there's no light. Yeah, you can't see Molly. Yeah, and, uh, they they make a point of saying like she has a little flashlight, mm-hmm. and the, the batteries go dead, and then Wisner's down on ground. It's like I'm not gonna tell the president that we lost Molly Cobb <laughs> because of a few dead batteries. Yeah, um, yeah, very scary. Um, the idea of just, like I said, just floating out there and I guess starving to death or suffocating, whichever happens first, um, very scary as well. And it makes for a real thrilling because you know there's they've already demonstrated um, in the earlier uh, episode where the uh, I forget which Apollo was exactly, but the one that blows up, um, they've kind of demonstrated already like a like a lack of sentimentality in a way when it comes to like killing off characters like they killed off Gene Kranz who. As we noted, is actually still alive <laughs> in real life. Um, but as they... is uh, Deke Slayton, right? No, Deke Slayton passed away. Oh, he did. Yes, um, but he was alive at the time of this episode. I no, think? I think he died in like the nineties. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, he, he yeah. I believe, he actually had cancer. Um, so he, he, died he, he did die prematurely. But uh, anyway, so what yeah. about Nixon? Is Nixon still alive? Well, no, unfortunately, <laughs> he's he's no longer with us. He doesn't. Mike just said, unfortunately, Mike <laughs> loves Nixon. 
Yeah, I don't know why I got so sentimental right there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that so that, that's all very exciting stuff. It, it is uh, countered by some like less exciting stuff going on. Um, specifically with Karen, um, you know, she she's bought a suit for her deceased son Shane. Um, she's very sad because she realizes it will be the last uh, set of clothes she will ever buy her son. Um, she just, like, <laughs> there's a scene that's, like, it's not, like, funny, but it is, like, Tracy's, like, oh, you know, um, our, uh, you know, a couple of, of the, the other wives are gonna come over and watch, like, the launch, um, and, and Karen's, like, no, I don't want them to be here, and just, like, crawls into bed immediately, although later in the episode, she, she gets out of bed, she kind of watches everybody, um, milling about and decides to basically run off to Wayne's house, where she smokes weed for the first time, and, and they talk about their fears and um, their their pasts and, and all of that. Yeah, this episode's like the return of uh, Molly and Wayne, mm-hmm. which is exciting, because I think they're two... Uh, certainly Molly is a very interesting character. I'll, I'll just go out and say that I think Molly's probably my favorite character from this season. Um, I don't know how you, you and Lars think, but I think she's definitely like things... I get a little more excited whenever Molly's on screen um, on the show. <laughs> I was a big Shane fan, so I'm, I'm really, <laughs> really upset. <laughs> uh, Wayne, Wayne's an interesting uh, person for Karen to uh, interact with and definitely to talk about Shane. And there's this uh, good scene where Tracy's son, who was Shane's friend. Danny. Danny. Oh, you'll, you'll know his name in later you'll, seasons, let's just say that. You'll oh. remember Danny. Does he, does he lead the rebellion against the Martian commander <laughs> in season three? Uh, Danny... Danny sort of reveals what i had suspected all along that shane because i kept saying shane was like the leader the ringleader mm-hmm. of their little gang of two <laughs> that was causing mischief and mayhem all over texas like putting cherry bombs in the toilet and graffiti and stealing baseball cards to like corner the market on the baseball card scene way back when real, real and, uh, bonnie and clyde stuff yeah they're young they're in love and they steal baseball cards <laughs> and then um yeah it's just really nice moment where danny sort of absolves shane but it's like obviously you know way too late to do anything about it yeah it's really it's really kind of touching again it is kind of the thing that you could imagine being on a less uh sci-fi centric show like this is us or gray's anatomy or that kind of show but um it's it's nice and touching yeah i I think it works better than it worked in like the previous two episodes because they don't dwell on it quite as well which lets them kind of build up the emotion more and it just you know but it, this the uh yeah it, it just it just makes it a little more potent yeah well it's like uh last the last two episodes they were kind of light on the sci-fi action mm-hmm. and this episode certainly has a lot of space action in spades and yeah. it sort of sort of helps provide some relief in between the action where we get these quiet little moments of character interaction mm-hmm. let's let's talk about ed on the moon because ed's ed's not doing well needless to say right mike no he's uh he's cracking up a little bit um he's he's still obviously mourning the loss of his son shane um but he discovers that uh, and he's also kind of basically just like ignoring any communication from houston yeah Uh, he's kind of shut down the thing is like rewatching it it's like ed definitely had like his own version of space madness that like mm -hmm gordo had but like ed had it to a lesser degree where he's like very paranoid about like the soviets on the moon yeah and it all sort of like this uh the death of his son like cracks him wide open like a 
egg hitting the ground at 50 miles an hour. Yeah, I was going to say, can we really blame Ed? He's up there. I, I don't remember how long it's been at this point, but he found out his son died because of the Soviets. Yeah, no, I don't blame him, you know, because he's all alone. Um, his son just died. He has no episodes of Bob Newhart left to watch. Like, anyone would go absolutely insane. Um, I mean, he doesn't go absolutely insane, but he, you know, he's very paranoid about the Soviets, and um, there's a lot of tension. Certainly there's a lot of tension in the scene where he, for the first time, he's like... Uh, he encounters uh you know the cosmonaut outside of the crater it's very uh very tense yeah the cosmonaut like draws his hammer in like a threatening manner um and you wonder if there's going to be like a showdown you see like there uh you see ed and the cosmonaut like reflected in each other's visors it's this very sort of like weird fisheye lens effect but it's yes yeah, it's like this kind of well like... it's like uh it makes it scary because it's like it's dehumanizing yeah the yeah. cosmonaut and it's like they would both you know it's like a faceless monster to each of them i yeah. actually love that part i thought that was so cool <laughs> it's good it just looks yeah. it's the the you put it well the dehumanization of the of the other it's handled very well and yeah no it's it's a great scene um in a in a great episode and uh what would have made it even cooler is if in addition to having a hammer the cosmonaut also had a sickle <laughs> yeah. and then ed takes out a lightsaber and then that would have that would have made it super cool ed holds an olive branch and a bunch of arrows in one hand it's just this very intense national symbolism and later in the episode at the very end uh, ed gets a knock on the door at jamestown he goes ah who could that be <laughs> um and sees that it is uh the russian the cosmonaut and uh ed's like oh um it looks like your uh your your rover your rover broke down you're running out of oxygen you can't walk back to base you want me to like bring you in so he does he lets him go in like i, I guess it's the airlock um uh but at, at right after the cosmonaut takes off his suit ed depressurizes the airlock and so the cosmonaut begins to suffocate and that's pretty much the end of the episode yeah it's a very interesting uh conclusion to the episode uh how did you feel about this when you first saw it lars like ed brings in the cosmonaut and it's like shuts off the oxygen i i i think it's very exciting and it's it's hard not to compare it to the penultimate episodes of later seasons it it feels like a it's it's hard to describe it feels like a small setup to the next episode actually though is so much happens at the beginning of this episode that this like I get what you're saying that there is like some relief, it's it's less dramatic and less actiony and this is a very human on human except it's like a robot on robot experience between Ed and the cosmonaut at this point. But I, I don't know. I, I guess I was like a little underwhelmed. It ended this way. I don't know if I would call it underwhelming. I would just say like this is definitely a very dramatic turn for a show. To, for it's like an interesting choice because like for all all anyone knows watching this the first time is that ed's basically kills this astronaut on the moon so it's very interesting that it's like because it's kind of a big um dramatic swing to take with like what is ostensibly our lead character on the show i don't i don't know how you how you feel about this mike because it is it is certainly dramatic but how do you think it reflects on ed yeah i mean it my, my feeling like i think when i first saw it I was like, well, like when he went in, I was like, oh, is Ed going to do this? And then he did it. And I was like, is it possible for a show to jump the shark in the first season? Because it felt like that almost. Yeah. And I was like, 
I feel like he doesn't like. I feel like he's probably not gonna murder him. And we find out, uh, you know, in the next episode, he, he doesn't actually kill him. But there is like a, you know, this guy who you're more or less rooting for throughout the entire season um, takes this turn and, and just becomes like an absolute like sadist for like five minutes. It, it's pretty shocking and like. I was like, ah, how, how's this going to go? But but I think it ends up resolving itself well. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely imagine a version where, like, the next episode is, like, Ed disposing of the body yeah. <laughs> and getting rid of the evidence. And then, like, I don't know anything about No Missing Russian. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he starts selling meth on the moon. And it's like, <laughs> it would be a de- definitely a very different kind of show yeah. um, if they took that direction. But fortunately, that doesn't happen. And um, let's just dig right into the the big, exciting season finale. So where do things pick up with uh, Ed and the Russian on the moon, Mike? So the next episode is A City Upon a Hill. Um, So Ed has let the Russian out of the airlock. He's now tied him up, though, and he's more or less interrogating him, basically asking him about the surveillance device they found in the crater um, and uh, and all of that. Um, But but before we, we see that, actually, what we see is Ellen wake up um in apollo 24 deke is calling out to her he is still on the outside well not still he is on the outside of this ship like holding on for dear life as it hurtles through space and so she has to um pull him back in close the fit close the door and she she realizes that his suit is punctured um he's been like hit with like shrapnel basically she has to to help like uh staple the wound which seems very unpleasant um, Gross. and then they try reaching out to Houston, but the, their communications are down, so then they don't really know what's going to happen. Then we see Ed and the Russian, who just keeps calling Ivan. Turns out his real name is Mikhail. Great name, of course. He asked about the interrogation. They, they have these conversations about, you know, um... Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra and Elvis and, you know, the evil Soviet Empire and the United States who likes to drop bombs on people and things like that. The sort of, like, conceit of the episode is that Houston is trying to contact Ed, who has gone full, you know, um, he's gone to full, like, soldier mode, right? He basically, he's, he's acting like he's back in Korea, more or less. And then also Ellen and company trying to get back to Moon. And then also lots of stuff happening with the Elias subplot as well. Yeah, I'm surprised. Woo. Rewa- <laughs> <laughs> Woo-hoo. I'm surprised rewatching this, how much, like, an element of Ed's character is, like, his involvement with, like, the Korean War. Because mm-hmm. it's, like, it, it definitely plays into it a lot, but I feel like it's never, it's, like, very subtly woven into the season. Like, I know Karen talks about it with, like, Wayne and stuff, but it's never, like, addressed. Like, we don't have a flashback of, like, Ed in Korea and stuff. It's just sort of, like, mentioned here and there. Mostly just, like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Ed, he was, you know, a pilot in the Navy, and he was also in Korea. It's just basically, like, character information, but it, like, plays a lot into, like, the way Ed handles his actions in, like, these last few episodes. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I do think it, in, in most other, like, prestige series, you probably would get one of those flashbacks, but kind of glad they don't. I'm kind of glad they, they save their time for other things. Does this show ever have a flashback? Yes, at the very beginning of the one episode where they show Tracy and yeah, Gordo, Gordo okay. when they meet. Okay. Meeting. Okay. But that's it. Yeah, that's that's the only flashback I can I can recall. Yeah, there's a very interesting uh, discussion about like the United States and the Soviet Union. What did you, what did you think about this Lars? Do you think it's a, a necessary equivocation mm-hmm. of the two two nations? He, 
You mean the scene where Mikhail's kind of telling him, like, the moon belongs to the world? Yeah. Yeah. I I actually do like it. So I, I really like this episode. Um, and I really like the title of this episode for reasons we'll get to. But it, it you know, the show's called For All Mankind. <laughs> hate, hate to break it to you. And, it, you know, they're bonding over, like, Elvis and Sinatra. And, you know, they clearly both wanted to be in space they clearly both wanted to explore and they're just doing what they wanted to do it is a very like human interaction and, and later in the episode of course they end up having to work together it just it it all ties together really nicely yeah it's um it is definitely very nice and it does you know play into the title of the show because the moon moon belongs to everyone mike right the best things in life are free exactly yeah mad men it's another mad men thing <laughs> This is the one show we can't get away from mentioning every episode in this podcast. <laughs> let's let's go back to um, Ellen and Deke who are on the ship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, before Ooh. actually before we delve deep into that, because um, you mentioned that Deke was like hanging on to the ship mm-hmm. while it was going, however fast those things go. I can only presume it was like a thousand miles per hour or something. Would you rather be like Deke, like hanging on to the ship for a thousand miles, or would you rather be molly floating into the dark side of uh earth well, which situation would you rather experience if you could mike Do, does this include that i've been injured in deke's situation no let's just say it like both like assume you're both uninjured deke your chances of being found yeah yeah are so low if you're molly but like assuming you're hanging on without a rope I don't know. It's just a very you're at least picking between something. two. <laughs> what, what I'll say is, is like so. I think the best case scenario in either like, they're assuming like there's someone inside the ship who can try to get you in. Like I'd rather be Deke, but also like if you're gonna die, I would rather. <laughs> this is so morbid. I'd rather <laughs> let go of the ship and then get and then get burnt up, than like slowly die while I'm floating in space. I think. Hmm. We'll make it happen for you, Mike. Don't worry. We'll make your dreams come true because this is actually a special episode of the Make-A-Wish podcast. Um, I just I, I bring it up only to illustrate the point that um, has stuck with me since that scene with Gordo and Danielle and Danielle's husband, Clayton, where they talk about, oh, you know, you're an astronaut. You're not, you know, on the front lines of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Clearly, this is a very stressful, being an astronaut is a very stressful job where it's like the chances that you could die are very real, especially in this show's universe. So I'm just uh, emphasizing that it's like being an astronaut is not as cushy as the average layperson might believe. That's just my two cents. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But anyways, so Deke Deke is uh, being stapled Mm -hmm. to... um, you know, hang on for dear life while Ellen is in the ship, and they do manage to uh, regain contact with Houston and Mission Control. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a problem, right, Mike? Well, there's a couple of problems. Um, they try to reset their course. They're kind of tumbling out there. Um, they don't have a lot of fuel left. They 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 come within thirty feet of resetting their course because they're they're in serious uh, danger of just like missing the moon. Um, but they miss it by just 30 feet, their course. So they assume they're going to die. They're floating out there. And Deke brings up 
his in case was my death letter that he wrote uh, Marge, which he was like distracted. He only had a couple minutes to write it. Um, and he talks about, you know, how, how he proposed to her and all this. And then he asks Ellen about, you know, how Larry proposed. And Ellen starts to tell the story. And then she's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. And she's like, I, she, she comes out to, to, to Deke. And Deke's like, wait, what? And then he realizes she's being serious. And he gets kind of very angry and disgusted. Yeah. Um, how, how did you react to um, the way Deke reacted to Ellen's um, coming out, Mike? I, I mean, I was kind of interested to see how they would handle it because, you know, I think the way Deke responded is probably the way, like, the median person in 1974 America probably would respond in that situation. Um, I think, actually, to bring Madman back into it, but the one episode where I forget the character's name, but he's, like, the, the German, like, freelance copywriter, when, when he mentions that he's gay in the office, like, you get the reaction of people in the office and all these, like, there's lots of young people there, and you think to yourself, ah, young people, they're progressive on this kind of thing, but then it's like, ah, young people in, like, 1963, actually, they're not that progressive on it. But then the way uh, it ends up resolving itself actually sets in motion a lot of things that happen in the next two seasons and, and, and informs a lot of the decision-making that Ellen gets. Because what happens is Deke says to her, and it's kind of becoming clear that Deke's probably not going to make it, but, but he says, you know, the things you told me don't tell anybody else. There are too many people out there like me. You know, you have great things ahead of you, but if you let this part of yourself be public, then they're all going to be for naught, basically, right? And he, he kind of more or less tries to atone for his, his bigotry at that moment. And I feel like that kind of put a... It felt it felt realistic, um, but also kind of ends on a sort of... I don't want to say bittersweet, because that gives us, like, too much credit, but, like, it informs Ellen's character a lot and helped put the, push the plot forward that way yes it, it feels like ellen is is testing the waters on like how would someone like deke who you know in theory you know they're very close at this point <laughs> she has saved his life um and they clearly care for each other so this should be an easy person for her to speak to in theory and he doesn't react well so i think that kind of shuts ellen down i don't know i like that deke was like angry about it because i feel like a lot of shows like when they like a lot of shows like set in the modern day like commenting on the past like they would have just had gone the easy route and just had deke be like oh okay mm -hmm. that's great but i like the fact that he's like angry but not in a way where it's like you like hate deke but like you can understand like kind of his point of view like the environment he grew up in and then like they do like come to a point of understanding later in the episode just so it's not you know like totally miserable I don't know. I thought it was interesting. And I, I think the way Chris Bauer plays Deke in that scene really, really, like, goes a long way to, like, helping, like, the audience, like, understand that, you know, he's from a different environment where, like, these things are, like, completely foreign to him. Yeah, It's a good performance. Yeah, yeah. He, he's actually, I think, very good throughout the course of the, the season. And he frames his objections a lot of ways, like, he's not like, ah, oh, that's, like, an affront to God. He's like, you put us all at risk by doing this, right? Like, this is a security risk. Um, there's blackmail implications, like, you know, he, that that's kind of where his anger stems from. But yeah, I, I think it is a good idea of, it doesn't give us an easy answer, right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't like kind of wrap things up all nicely. It um, really, it takes what I think is kind of like a realistic angle to it. Speaking of realistic, the exciting conclusion is that uh, Ed has to like go up in his little space shuttle to meet up with um, uh, Ellen and mm -hmm. the Apollo 24 crew. 
and what the problem is is that like their fuel they're out of fuel like completely and so they're caught in like a constant spin mm-hmm. so like ed can't like meet up with them and like they're supposed to like interlock right that's the initial plan yeah they're supposed to dock they come up with this crazy plan <laughs> ellen comes up with a crazy plan because you know what she she played softball well no it's i don't she, she said, says something like i know how to catch a softball or something i used to play with my brother yeah and she also says gene cernan told me that on the moon even a girl can throw like joe namath um joe namath of course quarterback <laughs> of the new york jets greatest football team of all time gene cernan actually was a real guy he was the last man on the moon the last man to ever step foot on the moon um but yeah, and she, she mentions like playing baseball with or football or something with four brothers. Um, but the idea is that they're gonna throw this like tank from the lamb, that, like an oxygen tank or yeah, something, like a fuel tank that Ed is riding on. She's gonna like clip her line to it, and she's gonna will... catch it with like her tether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like one more, uh, the last in a line of last ditch efforts mm-hmm. that we've gone through this season to like Ed his meetup and he's gonna like toss this big oxygen tank at ellen and the hope is that ellen catches it and you know doesn't fumble and it goes off into the deep reaches of space where she'll encounter certain death yes well we should mention that mike that or (laughs) that mike (laughs) that ed could not do this without the cosmonauts help right Mm -hmm. i I, and to backtrack just like a second so they, they flicker the lights in the base, like SOS, to get Ed's attention. And is there no mention of the fact that Ed has been AWOL? <laughs> They're really just like, you got to get on it. Like, we got to do this thing right now. Do it. What? And they just, like, kind of completely <laughs> ignore the fact. Yeah. What? Yeah, they should have done an entire court martial. They should <laughs> no, have called I don't, like, the judge advocate general in. Um, you know, we should have brought in the entire cast like, of JAG. I get they have no other option, but don't you want to know that Ed's, like, not going to go, like, kill them or something i don't know yeah. make sure ed hasn't gone full colonel kurtz on the moon <laughs> yeah so what happens is the cosmonaut helps get ed because they're using the lamb from ed's earlier moon landing because they just kind of left it there um so he helps get him there while they're there ed reveals that he sabotaged the cosmonaut's rover and hands him the missing part to it but as after he hands it and after ed goes up into the atmosphere uh, the cosmonaut turns around, and you see in the reflection of his visor, you see Jamestown Base, implying that he has that he he's, he's not just being an altruist, but he has something something up his sleeve. But yeah, I know I, I thought this was like a very exciting scene. It's great, and I love the way that it fakes you out for a split second, thinking it's not going to work because it sails above Ellen's head initially, and then she has to kind of like like uh, reel herself out with the line and then clip onto it that way i well i it was just it's you know just just very exciting you know nail-biting stuff yeah it it is i was confused about how ed's like he's like trying to time it correctly i mean i guess he knows more about how physics work in zero g because he's like i'm gonna throw this thing so that it lines up with you so i was wondering if like what if he threw it and then it went like much slower Mm. than he thought but he like manages to time it pretty good but it's ellen's fault because she's got butterfingers i guess it slips out of her hand um with just enough time because they say like because it's really that's only like the first part of it she has to like install it and they say that takes like five minutes or 10 minutes to install and they're like we've only got 15 minutes left so if you're going to do this do it now Mm -hmm. and then they manage to do it and then she catches it she manages to install it and then uh ellen relieves ed so ed can uh 
go home but before they actually do that there's like a scene where ed offers to like isn't there a scene where ed offers to stay behind yeah well, we should mention that deke also dies during this whole process pull off this like miracle thing and then um Ellen she's looks... like she's like deke deke yeah isn't it great we're saved deke deke <laughs> and, he, and he slumped over and it's kind of implied they like bury him on the moon they, yeah they give him they give, they give him, him a little stone with the honorific deke yes on it. and they drop his little pin into the into the the dust but yeah uh so that means ellen was supposed to have two other crew members with her is now just her and Ed's like, okay, we'll figure out a way to divide the work. And she's like, no, Ed, like, you have to go back. You've been up here for, like, a hundred however many days, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I'll stay up here. I'll be fine. Yeah, she, she's like, like I, I used to play football. I'll be <laughs> fine. She relieves him of command. And then the end is this, like, uh, she's interviewed by somebody. It might be the fake media. Barbara Walters. I don't really remember. But And the question's just like, oh, like, you know, all these people have died. Like, is uh, it worth it to still go up to the moon? And she gives this whole monologue about how, yes, it is still worth it. And you get, you see Ed sort of, like, coming down to the Earth's atmosphere. You see him walking into Shane's room. Um, you see a bunch of stuff like that. And then it also, we should mention the Alito plot at some point, but we can talk about the ending before well, that. <laughs> well, Ellen also learns from her approach with deke and says she loves you to her husband as pam is watching and it's just kind of sad yeah pam gets very upset about that yeah there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in these two episodes that we're unfortunately just not going to be able to cover in uh, as much detail as mike might want to <laughs> or i might want to in summary i would say that these are two pretty pretty great episodes right mike i would agree and just to touch on the latest subplot because it is kind of important which I know Liz doesn't want to do. But what happens is the FBI finds out that Octavio has been using a fake social security number to get employment. They deport him to Mexico. Um, the family that Alita and Octavio were staying with, I guess... They didn't they, pay the rent. Yeah, they didn't pay the rent, so they bug out. And Alita is trying to find out what to do. She asks Margot if she can stay with her, and Margot rebuffs her, basically. And so Alita just kind of like runs away. Yay. Did she go to Werner von Braun's house? I guess we'll find out in the next season. We will. <laughs> yeah, and then there's the whole plotline stuff going on with Pam and Karen down on Earth. I don't know. Do and... you want to talk about Pam at all briefly, Mike? I mean, what happens is is that... Uh... My favorite thing is when uh, Karen Baldwin walks in and, like, Pam, a character I'm already kind of, like, not liking so much, she acts, like, rude and, like, mean to her mm -hmm. until she finds out she's Ed Baldwin's wife and then she's nice. And I'm just like, how are you able to run a business, Pam? <laughs> If you're just mean to everyone that walks in right off the bat until you find out they're an astronaut's wife. Well, Pam is very upset because she doesn't know Ellen's whereabouts. There's a media blackout going on. She gets a call from Larry, and Larry's like, hey, this is what we know, blah, 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 but I really shouldn't be talking to you. Karen goes to the outpost and, like, for whatever reason, and she's kind of, it's the first time she'd ever been there because wives weren't allowed there. She and Pam kind of commiserate over, like, breaking rules and stuff and pam's like oh yeah like you know i'm good friends with ellen and blah 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 and karen's like oh well you know there's like a friends or family section at jse that we can go when there's a media blackout so we can find out what's going on i'll take you there and we'll go hang out they go larry's like very upset that pam is there because he's like oh you're you're gonna blah 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 people are gonna be upset and they're gonna find out and, uh, and she's there anyway and she gets to watch ellen do her thing she's very emotional about it in the end but there's kind of the gut punch in the end 
where Ellen does the whole I love you, Larry bit. And Pam, who was already against Ellen and Larry being married, is now even more upset. But how much more exciting would it have been if Pam is in the, the viewing room with everyone, and then who walks in but James Urbaniak as the FBI agent? It's like, oh, hello, <laughs> who are you? And then she, he like zeroes in on Pam trying to figure it out. Um, that would have been interesting, but that unfortunately doesn't happen. There's a post-credit scene, everybody, so don't don't just switch it off. Don't go up and turn off the dial on your TV that's um, 50 years old. Stay and watch, because um, there's a scene during the credits. Uh, also, great use of a song is um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World by uh, Tears for Fears, mm-hmm. which is kind of anachronistic mm-hmm. in both of the time periods in the scene of the show and in the post credit scene, because it hasn't come out yet, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Ed and Karen are watching TV, trying to do their best impression of a mystery science theater episode and they're like commenting over you know tv and like what's happening on the tv yes there's this <laughs> go ahead well, anybody a sea, is anybody sea out dragon there? being launched into space in the year 1983 i believe yes i actually did not i forgot about the scene because i did just turn it off after the credits <laughs> i forgot about that no mike <laughs> loki shows up what are you doing <laughs> Is, is that a real thing, a sea dragon? Yes, it is. Oh, well, it never actually existed in the real world, but it was a prototype. Ma- it's a massive rocket designed for exactly what they end up using it for. It's to get a giant payload. Yeah, plutonium oh, is what they yeah. say. Yeah, it's this uh, scene. It's a very weird scene because, like I said, it starts out on, like, they're watching the TV it's very flat and you like you don't see ed or karen you just hear like their voices and it just feels very weird yeah so i'm not i'm not sure i guess obviously this scene is meant to sort of tease things for a season two um but as it is it just kind of feels like here's another scene and Mm -hmm. i'm not really sure what uh you're supposed to feel other than like lars was saying like there's this massive rocket and it's like it definitely feels very massive and big it it (laughs) just gives you a hint of where it's going i'm actually not a huge fan of the end credit scenes throughout this show mm-hmm. i i feel like they're just very the post-credit <sighs> scenes or all the episode endings no 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 like the post-credit scenes at the oh. final episode of each season they're they're all just very flat and very forced i wait so you, does each <laughs> this is actually kind of news to me now well do you mean like each the, season ends has... with a flash forward yes do they all have also post-credit scenes it, no, I believe it's just a post-credit scene in a, two of them. Okay, that's. I may have to revisit two of the season finales then. I don't feel like this scene really like accomplishes much on its own, other than saying like, "Hey, we're gonna jump in time again," and it's like I'm not really getting a whole lot out of this scene because it's not really like a scene. It's more just like here, I, here's I, something. I, I agree. Yeah. So I, I would say if Mike missed something, he probably didn't miss much of anything. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm probably not going to go back and watch this episode just to see that scene. Um, yeah. I do hate when that happens, though, because I feel like it happens a lot more nowadays because of the infernal rise of post-credit scenes where it's like you watch a movie and then you go to, like, maybe see people talking about it or talk online about it with your friends, and it's just like if you missed it, then it's like you feel like you missed the movie. Well, and I feel like it hasn't, like, that doesn't work well on streaming either, right? Because you're so used to skipping the credits to get to the next episode. And in some cases, there's, like, an automatic countdown that does that for you. 
So it just does not, it doesn't really, yeah. you know. But um, when you watch it on Apple TV+, Plus, the, the countdown doesn't start till after the post credit scene. So no, okay. it's a bit helpful. But, like, yeah, it's just very weird. It's just a very weird scene um, to end a, a pretty, pretty great season of TV. Yeah, so um, very, very exciting. Right, Mike? I agree. Riveting. Yeah. Riveting. Riveting. Would, would anyone care to say it was out of this world? Oh, well. Stellar. I'll call it Stellar. How about that? Lunar. Lunar. Lunacy. It moved me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, on that note, we're going to take a short break from our sponsor, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, concluding thoughts on season one of For All Mankind. So don't go anywhere, and we'll be right back. Enjoying this podcast and wondering where you can find more intelligent and insightful content just like it? Just head over to thepostcard.com, where you can find the latest opinion and analysis on politics, music, film, television, and a litany of other topics. In addition to our articles and podcasts, you can also check out our visual features, like our Floor Fight Bracket, our 2024 Republican nomination draft, and in presidential election and midterm election years, a map with all of our analysis. And if you like what you read, you can subscribe to our newsletter and, if you're feeling generous, donate to the site so we can keep churning out the content you know and love. If you love the site so much that you want to write for it, drop us a line at contact at thepostwriter.com. We're always looking for new contributors and willing to read any pitch you may have. That's the great thing about The Postwriter. It's not just about us. It's also about you. So head over to thepostwriter.com and see if there's anything that piques your interest. Bet there is. All right, we're back. We we've landed at Jamestown Base. Mike and Lars and I, we're all here in the uh, the epicenter, right near Shackleton Crater. Hi Bob. Hi Bob. <laughs> and. Now's the portion of our show we're going to talk about our favorite uh, Bob Newhart show episodes. <laughs> um, Lars, what's your top five Bob Newhart show episodes? <laughs> oh, geez. I, I, can't, I love them all. I can't decide. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, folks, we're all, we're all here in Jamestown Base. We finished cleaning up all the ants, and uh, we're here to talk about the uh, season one of For All Mankind. So um, I guess I'll start with Lars because he's our, he's our special guest this week about um uh just the show um lars what is uh what does the show uh mean to you what do you what do you like about for all mankind so i i was drawn to the show i mean i guess it was like 18 months ago now i don't remember it there's something about it that feels very there's a friend of the site named chris (laughs) there's there's a world in which like Michael and me and Chris and Lewis have all like combined personalities and for all mankind is kind of like what gets spat back out. It, you know, it, it just does a really good job of capturing sort of the best of humanity. Like I'm a sucker for a space, like an inspirational space film. Um, and it, it, 
like I, e- even starting at like the opening credits it's like i'm already moved right as it tells the story of great human progression and then it like shows you that the timeline diverges in this like gold plated opening credits thing and it's like well if we're gonna do this we really need everyone and then it becomes very like woman focused um i don't know and and, and i think there is something very like star trekky about it and you know, I know that the there is a tie to Deep Space Nine through uh, Moore. Is his name? Yeah, Ronald D. Moore uh, yeah. was a writer on Star Trek: The Next Generation, and he was also big on Deep Space Nine. And he wrote for Voyager as well. And he also wrote uh, the Battlestar Galactica reimagining on Sci-Fi in the mid two thousands. And um, there are a couple other producers and writers from Deep Space Nine as well. So yeah, there there is a yeah. Star Trek connection. The one last thing I'd add on just kind of why I was drawn to and continue to be drawn to this show is I'm for an alternate history show, I usually can't watch them. And I think they're usually so bleak. Like I'm thinking of High Castle and that one about Lindbergh that Mike and I tried for a day. The plot and I feel like America. everyone stopped watching. <laughs> yes. Right. They're both like very bleak, but this is like the rare alternate history. It's like we could have been better. And we need to do better in the future so we can be like this, right? And I get that it's easier to make a alternate history show or film uh, bleaker because then you feel good. And it's like, oh, I'm doing a good job. My world isn't like this. <laughs> but there is something genuinely inspirational about a show like this. And I would kind of lump The West Wing into this category, too, is it is like an alternate history inspirational show in a way. I- I don't know. What about the newsroom? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. That's commenting on history. Mm -hmm. Aaron Sorkin took the easy job. (laughs) What if the news had 2020 hindsight immediately? (laughs) Um, It was funny because I I just Googled um, alternate history TV shows, and The West Wing was one that popped up. And it is like one where you wouldn't think of it as an alternate history, but it kind of is. Well, is it like the whole thing? Doesn't it happen in a universe where... There's supposedly a point of divergence that they never really So, so the, the canon that is never actually chosen, but that I accept, is that in 1974, Nixon does something else, and they have to have an election that year. So they rewrite the Constitution, and that's why they're two years behind. Yeah, it's like Nixon resigns, but he doesn't have a vice president yet. And so the, the Speaker of the House, Carl Albert, becomes president, but he refuses to serve as president, so they rewrite the Constitution... And the elections happen. Wouldn't Gerald Ford still be the speaker? No, no, he Gerald he was Ford House was Minority Leader. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. This this was in like the fifty year period where Republicans did not control the House. It, anyway, about for all mankind. <laughs> um, no, but it, that's it's good. Uh, one of the things that um, I feel like you haven't mentioned, but like you addressed alternate history. But I think one of the things that certainly appeals to you, and certainly appeals to Mike, and certainly appeals to people who are fans of the Post Rider is history specifically united states political history and that is definitely addressed in uh in large part in the show it's not just a show about space it also sort of involves the behind the scenes politics and economics that went into the united states uh space program yes and and i think by and large they do a good job incorporating it i actually wish they did i think they do a good job in the first season but I, I don't know. I kind of wish they did a little more overall. It's like they, they stress 
that Armstrong, there's, I, I think it's episode two or something, it's like Neil Armstrong is stranded on the moon. Yeah, that's the exciting um, conclusion yeah. to episode one. And then he, like, like, they don't do anything with him. And, you know, like, John Glenn is not, like, a figure here. They don't actually use a lot of these real people other than Deke, um, who is probably the only real person that they continue using for so long. Um, I don't know. It leaves me a little wanting for, like, a little more real-world tethering. Because I think that's, like, a big benefit of this show is you can kind of look at divergent points and connect it to where you are and what you were doing, especially as the show's gotten more recent. Uh, and what you know about history and it you know it's reached a point where i feel like it's just becoming a little detached from reality yeah that is that is a good point and that's certainly something mike and i have addressed here and there on the show is that they definitely want to um sweep out a lot of real world stuff so they can bring in you know more fictional characters because you can do more interesting you know less uh some would say insensitive stuff like you're not going to have neil armstrong you're not going to concoct some drama where you know he breaks bad and then decides to sell meth on the side in order to (laughs) fund his uh, moon going habit or whatever um yeah like you know it's just insensitive so there there is a lot but you know there's characters like molly's heavily inspired on a real person but um yeah there's there was definitely a concerted effort to get rid of anyone real like Werner von braun gene kranz deke slayton um um so yeah and definitely because like the alternate history aspect where we're focusing on nixon and then imagining a world where ted kennedy ascends to the presidency that's sort of like um you know the frosting on the cake that's sort of the thing where it's like people who are interested in history they can like glom onto that and be like i want a show where it's just just that where it's like facts that I know somewhat rearranged that I can imagine. And it's like, it could definitely be tempting for a show. It's not really about the presidency to like focus on that, but it's like, this is a show about the space program. So it really needs to focus on these characters. So I worry about that in the next few seasons. If it goes crazy with like Ronald Reagan, you know, and then he uh, does something evil or terrible or something. So I don't know. How, How do you feel about it, Mike? Yeah, no, I, I think, well, I think one of the reasons, like you said, Lars, I also sometimes have a tough time with um, alternate history stuff, but I think one of the reasons why this does work so well is because it takes a, it explores it, but it doesn't go, like, crazy, and and the, the point is not, like, like, I think in The Man of the High Castle, the point is, like, they find out that there's another universe where actually the Axis does lose, and they have to, like, try and get back there or something, but it's, like... <laughs> Wait, really? Yes. Um, yeah, they watch like a film, I think, from the R universe. Presumably. How did they get that? Never mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I think the um, and what I think is great is it just kind of like lets lets the show exist in this world. And yeah, it has those tantalizing little bits about you know uh, presidencies changing and uh, things like that. And like I, I I much prefer what they do with the presidents in, in this than they would be if like they hired an actor to go play Richard Nixon or Ted Kennedy. <laughs> Right. Oh, I think it's so clever what they do in each, or in the first two seasons, for sure. Like, with Nixon, where it's all, like, on audio tape, it's it's just a very nice touch. Yeah, and it's, like, um, it would be, like, overwhelming and distracting if they hired an actor, because then you'd right. have to concoct things for them to do over and over again, and it's, like, we would need to get in touch with that actor anytime we needed Ted Kennedy to show up and say things like, uh, things like when he comments about Ronald Reagan, I thought this was so funny. I 
I wrote it down and sent it to Mike. I think it's at the beginning of episode 10 when Ted Kennedy's commenting on Ronald Reagan and he has the whole, he has this whole make America great again shtick. And then it's like, what was so great about America back then? The depression, Jim Crow, Vietnam. Well, let me tell you, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny. Cause it has like the accent on top, but um, mm. yeah, the, the show definitely. And Mike and I commented this on a couple times where it, they do it enough, but I feel like if they keep, if they kept doing it, it would be a little distracting. Like, it was already a little bit distracting when there was a scene where Ted Kennedy calls Nixon when Nixon's lounging in California, and he's basically, like, they're threatening each other about, like, Watergate, and, like, Nixon wants to expose Ted Kennedy's goings-on in Palm Beach. Is already veering a little bit towards, like, historical parody, so I'm glad that they, they minimize it um, in the show. Because uh, the characters are what's really important. So um, my next question is, like, guys, who are your favorite characters from this season? Uh, I would do anything for Tracy Stevens. And I <laughs> love her arc uh, in this season. I, I, I actually think Nixon's Women is my favorite episode. Um, I'm just a big Tracy Steven, Stevens fan. Anything and specific? We, and we didn't... I. Because she, she has to grapple with, like, two things, right? She has to grapple with her relationship with Gordo, which is bad and terrible. And we didn't mention that in uh, episode 10 is Gordo gives her the astronaut pin. And it's kind of like a nice little moment between them after this very tumultuous, you know. Gordo's not a great guy for a lot of parts of this season. And Tracy kind of, kind of starts out the season really struggling, and she... I mean, she saves Ellen in the desert, um, and she kind of uses her own differences to her advantage. Um, she's plucky. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really like Tracy Stevens. Mike? Yeah, I, I like Tracy, too. I, I find Tracy and Gordo, I think, to be two of the more compelling characters yeah. um, in this season. I, I like Molly as well, but um, there's something about like the Tracy-Gordo dynamic that, that really, uh, really... Uh, sort of you know, so, in, in, interests me and I, and I think kind of like helps drive the show in a um, you know uh, interesting direction outside of Ed's comedic stylings of course <laughs> I I actually really like Margot in this season uh, in season one especially um, I feel like she's a character people don't talk about a lot in season one but she always stands out to me yeah she's a, a, a reliable standby player on this show yeah, I like that actress. She was in, um, I just saw Nope. She's in that as well. Um, mm. So her, her name's popping up. Her her weird name, Ren, Ren Schmidt, I think is her name. Um, she's popping up everywhere. Um, she was in Nope. That's what Lewis just said. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why Mike's great as a <laughs> co-host. <laughs> I just repeat everything Lewis says. Did you guys see that she was in Nope, by the way? No, nope, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> she, she, was, she was that, uh, in that Jordan Peele movie. What was it? Um, Keanu? Yeah, so I already said it, but, you know, my favorite character this season is uh, Molly Cobb, played with, you know, electricity and vigor by Maura Tierney. Just, like, phenomenal. I know it's not really Maura Tierney, but um, uh, she, she's great. I actually, like, forgot that she's in these last two episodes, and like mm. when she came back, I was like, "Yay, it's Molly again!" Because, um, you know, Ed, Ed is like the lead, our 
presumptive lead, but he's just like doesn't really have too much going on. But like Molly is very like she's got a fire. I'm just saying like in in terms of like writing a character for a TV show, Molly is more like conflictive mm-hmm. and stuff. Even though they like kind of uh, dial that like way down. Like, could you imagine Molly from episode three, like in that scene where she has to talk to Margot about like Margot's like, hey, you know, I'm sorry that I like tried to abandon you in the deep reaches of space so you could asphyxiate to death and molly's just like hey you know don't worry about it we've all been there like yeah. i feel it just goes to show like how much these characters have grown and changed since the uh first few episodes and how natural natural seeming it is and uh yeah going back to what lars was saying about nixon's women introducing all the women into the show was uh it was very smart like the way that it felt like organic where it wasn't just like we need to get a whole bunch of i mean that is kind of like the, the premise is like we need to get a whole bunch of women in here but like it, it makes sense because like you understand people understand like richard nixon and the politics involved sort of where it's like we need to get this program up and running and then they managed to introduce all the women in a way that you know doesn't feel too shoehorned in outside of the way it would it's shoehorned in within the universe of the show so and the women characters were all all pretty great yeah i they they introduced molly and ellen who become like major characters they introduced them pretty seamlessly i would say what were what were your favorite parts of the season Uh, anything in particular well i've got some low lights but the nixon's women episode just really does stand out to me in this season um which is not to say the end of this season isn't very like dramatic I just, I wish the show in the future would kind of stick to the crescendo that this season has. <laughs> I don't know. I'll well, the, say no more. The problem with, yeah, without revealing anything, the problem with past seasons becomes very sprawling, right? Yeah. And Nixon's Women is like a very good self-contained story, more or less. And it's yes. very character-driven. Um, and that's what makes it so good, right? It's you, you not only see Tracy grow and develop, you also get sort of like you see Karen kind of like dig in and kind of um, become maybe not the best version of herself. Um, it introduces Ellen and Molly who kind of provide these, these extra angles. It even has that kind of like very dramatic you think Tracy died moment at the end. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really just well done episode of television. Yeah, agreed. Um, I think a lot of all the, the space stuff at the risk of, you know, sounding glib, because obviously that's, like, half the show. It's, like, really well done. The show really nails the feeling of space and sort of nails, like, the little details about space travel in a way that's, like, not, you know, it's not glossed over, where it's, like, you just take it for granted. And it's also not done in a way where they make everything about space travel seem, like, scary and precarious. It does it in a way that feels very um, realistic and grounded. But uh, Lars, I'm interested to hear what what were your lowlights for the season because I, I certainly have some, and uh, I'm sure Mike has some lowlights. But I'm interested to hear what you think. So, so a thing I do struggle with this show because I, I do consider it, I, you know, despite being I think the most underrated show of all time, I'm not sure I could give it an A plus. I actually think it's closer to an A minus. <laughs> there is some dismal acting throughout this show there just really is and i and i think part of it is that um is it nixon no like i actually like i like that part i actually really struggle with joel kinnaman i kind of struggle with jody balfour who plays ellen as well 
Um, and occasionally I struggle with uh, Molly's actress, Sonia Welger. I, I just, there's some like lines they have that they just do not deliver. I, I um, actually think Gordo and Tracy are like, uh, they stand out as like actually good actors. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you for Joel Kinnaman and somewhat, and um, the, the, the person you said who plays Ellen, but I'm surprised you say that about uh, Sonia Welger. Um, because like i said but um like like, i like just i don't want to acknowledge it too much because just you know different strokes for different folks but um yeah i can i can see like i really wish ellen like i don't know if it's the performance so much or the writing like i have difficulties with that character of ellen and sort of that whole storyline but um uh and i think pam is also like a wink weak link in that storyline i i feel like see i actually like pam (laughs) but why she's she's awful (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what? She I, she's a I, she's a loser who r- runs a bar. I, I I actually think I would barrel. I really don't care for Ed and Karen as my main characters, or as actors. They're just they don't. I'm actually not usually very interested in their plots I, for one reason or another. I like Ed as a figure of sort of like American male stoicism, and just how he's just sort of like he's not. Like, it would have been very easy to just make him, like, um, I don't know, to make him just, like, Captain America in space, basically, and this sort of, like, clean-cut Boy Scout who was, like, all upset about the changes going on in the world. But they play it a little more subtly, and his sort of, like, it's less of, like, a, um, they give him this kind of, like, repressed rage um, that, that I think actually works pretty well. Again, like, he's not, I wouldn't say he's my favorite character, but I think he, I think they use him well. Yeah, like what Mike is saying, I think it's necessary to have that kind of character, especially in a period set show. Like, it, it, it is. Yeah, I, I think I'm biased by the later seasons. Karen definitely annoyed me in this, but it's one of those things too where it's like, do I not like this character because she's a bad character? Do I not like her because she's supposed to be so unlikable? And I feel like it's mostly the latter. The, but the issue is that they do use her too much, right? Like the whole shame yeah. plot line. I really just did not Shame. care. For, right? It's just so I get why it's there, but it just it did nothing, absolutely nothing for me. Well, and to your credit, I actually think the scene where I think it's episode 9 where Ed is like creating the grave for Shane on the moon. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's a very touching scene by Kinnaman. And I get yeah. I like what you said about the American stoicism. I just Yeah, cuz I remember I, I, I said this already when I first saw the trailer. For the show and i didn't really know anything about it and i thought it was just a show set in like the modern day about the space program and i saw joel kinnaman and i'm like oh, all right just get a white guy but it, like <laughs> it makes sense when it's like a period set show to like have this character mm-hmm. um do i wish he had a different haircut that was more in line with the period yes <laughs> but um who's who's that for me to say i mean obviously i think the way the show has been pitched a lot and i feel like described a lot it's like we keep bringing up um star trek and um Mad Men, obviously every week, but um, I I think the show suffers when it sort of deals with like these elements, like you know Shane or you know divorce, marriage problems. When it's like we all really kind of want the show to just go like full Star Trek in a way, or at least that's how I feel about it. Like, I, I don't mind it when they use it well, and I feel like with Tracy and Gordo, they do use the human element well, and, and I get that it's like completely attached to their space travel because they're both like astronauts. Yeah, but like that's an I, I'm interesting just, I'm relationship. I'm just saying, I feel like I hope the the lesson the writers take from this season, um, 
and when they move on to another season in hopes of improving is like more space stuff not that i want the show to become fully about like ed fighting cylons secretly hidden on the moon although i think that would be pretty cool right guys i mean like ed obviously wants to get in on some action up there um but i you know some some space stuff like less plot lines that would be on something like, like this is us um which you know is my go-to for picking on shows set on earth <laughs> i you know I, I like the space stuff yeah who doesn't um and i think we've talked this before but the issue too is like i i can see where a, like a shame plot line would work but the problem is we don't i feel like we don't really know shame right well it's you, like the rehearsal <laughs> you guys don't that. understand it's like Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal because of the nature of the way the show skips through time Mm -hmm. that Shane is played by like two different actors or something so you don't really get attached and Ed I think Ed only really has like one scene with Shane like the pivotal bicycle scene yeah which is called back to over and over and over (laughs) again and it's like maybe just have more than one scene guys Mm -hmm. I don't know just my opinion and so I guess my last question for our episode today is like, Lars, you and I obviously covered uh, the, the television franchise V in the last season of this podcast. And a big portion of that was our sort of discussion about how V connects to like the modern day, like <laughs> yeah. the timelessness of the commentary and whatnot. So um, I'm going to pose this question to both of you guys because I think it's an important element of the podcast to keep in touch because science fiction has a history of no commenting on the modern day, you know. Plan 9 from Outer Space excluded. You know, there's all sorts of uh, morals and lessons we can learn from science fiction. So, obviously, this is a very recently produced show. But, like, what, if anything, do you think this show says about the modern day, you know, whether it's 2022 or, like, the last few years, if, if anything? I think American hegemony made us lazy, Lewis. No, I, I think the reason this show is so great, despite so many flaws, is it talks about this tension between competition and collaboration in a really interesting way, both between nations, right, between the United States and the Soviets, uh, and between people. You know, the Nixon's Women episode is also a great example of that, not to keep harping that one point, but it's like the women have to choose. Are they competing or are they going to work together? Um, And throughout this season and throughout the following seasons, the characters, like the key conflict point is, are we going to work together or are we going to stop each other and you know the end of the season we talked about the cosmonaut and ed have to work together that's a good example um but to go back to the american hegemony it's it's about does do we all have to win is it good if just one person wins or is just competition itself the goal and how do you pick what needs to be comp- competed against and what needs to what you need to collaborate on it's just very well done and i i think there are already a lot of lessons for the modern day about you know the united states remains the world superpower but there is an upsurge of competition in the world now and i think we honestly really struggled for for like 20 years without that i don't know american malaise is a real thing starting in the 90s so it's it's just interesting president kennedy was right american (laughs) malaise (laughs) Um, Mike, do you do you have any thoughts, any differing thoughts or similar thoughts to Lars? Yeah, I, I think Lars pretty pretty much got it. You know, I think there is a um, in another life. I talked about this on another podcast, but I think the beauty of space travel is that it creates 
more or less like unproblematic heroes, right? You know, um, there's something very pure about the desire to want to go to the moon really for the sake of scientific advancement and human, human achievement. And I feel like, um, you know, I, I do feel like there's a little bit of a critique where it's like we, we lost that because we, we won so early, right? Because we won the space race, that kind of um, tamped down a lot of enthusiasm. And if we had focused on these sort of pure aims, then maybe our society ends up a little better as well. Uh, but I also think it is it is pretty... It's not quite that naive, though, right? Like, it does acknowledge that the people who are going to space who are leaving their families back on Earth are a little selfish. And it does acknowledge that, you know, there is a... Um, the competition there, you know, there's, like, military applications, right? And that uh, things can get ugly. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think it's a really good just sort of like um, there is a it's, it's optimistic but, but not naive kind of focused on um, just just like I said human achievement and, and kind of what we can accomplish when we work together. And Lewis, you talked about it um, I think if an episode or two ago you call it kind of like competence porn, um, but what I, which is not untrue. But I also feel like. Uh, the, the problems these people are trying to solve are also kind of, like, born of, like, human failure as well, right? And I think that, like, I feel like comments porn is usually, is usually kind of used kind of glibly to, like, make fun of, like, the West Wing or House or something. But the idea is that, like, these people are working towards, like, a very lofty goal. Um, and they don't always reach it. But even when they don't reach it, it's like they say in the, in the, in the first episode, what becomes the brokenhearted? Well, they just, they go to the moon anyway, right? Um, so, Yeah. I'm surprised you pulled House MD as an example of confidence porn. <laughs> I don't know. Is that the thing? Like, it's really I, I kind of like it. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's just not the first word that comes to mind when I think of uh, Gregory House. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, I did say that, and I do think there's an element of it. But um, um, I, I think this show, like uh, this, looking back at this season, there is a lot of moments where I wonder what the Soviets think of the United States space program because they seem to have so much trouble. Like even doing the basic thing, like landing on the moon, you know, go go through six months without anyone going crazy. Um, there's spaceships blowing up, stuff like that. So I'm, it's just like a, a joking way of like, I wonder what the Soviets think. But yeah, you two had some very well thought out ideas about the show and how it relates to the modern day. I'm not going to even try to like come up with my own because I think it would just sound too similar to what either you guys are saying. And then I have a couple of joke questions that I think we can quickly spring through so um, I'll, I'll start with uh, this one is really mainly to ask Lars and uh, but Mike can obviously jump in too this is kind of a I'm interested to hear what Lars has to say because this is kind of a Sophie's choice Lars is probably going to rack his brain trying to pick between these two <laughs> binary options but um, Lars it's 1974 you go into the voting booth and it's Richard Nixon or Ted Kennedy you mean it's who 1976 do you vote for? no sorry. 72 72 sorry would you vote for Richard Nixon, your oh. favoritest president of all time, <laughs> who you've written about extensively, or would you vote for that lying cheat, Ted Kennedy? Oh. Uh, I don't, I'm kind of inclined to say Nixon <laughs> because of there's a character later in the season who's a big Nixon fan. And I, and I think of Nixon in that way, right? Where it's like, this is a world where Nixon... He did some bad things, but I think is probably more fondly remembered than 
it's like Watergate wasn't quite the deal it was, and he was seen as like the Kennedy of his day. Like he is the one who did it. I don't know. I could be convinced that Nixon's the option. I, I, I'm not a big. I, I'm too biased about Ted Kennedy. I know too much about it. <laughs> well, so but that's the thing, though, right? Because in this universe, Chappaquiddick never happens. Yeah, but a lot of other stuff does. <laughs> but Watergate does. I I think I would I would. I think I would probably vote for Ted Kennedy, right? I feel like if if I am if you're putting like Mike Lovito as he would have existed in 1972 in this alternate universe, then I think I would vote for Kennedy because Watergate would have happened. Um, yeah. We lost the race to the new Nixon depresses me now. Who knows what we know about Spiro Agnew at this point? Um, I think I would have to vote for Kennedy. It'd be a tough call. Yeah, I just really wanted to hear Lars say I would vote for Nixon. <laughs> well, so, well, so where I, where I was going to go is 76 would be a much easier decision. <laughs> Keep yes. Kennedy in the White House. The episode oh. is literally called. <laughs> it yeah. makes it very obvious who yeah. the president becomes. <laughs> well, yeah, I think Mike mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan already yeah. on an episode. So, um, yeah. Um, I don't know. I would have probably voted for... Uh, Nixon, because he was on the cover of that one Fantastic Four issue. Uh, I don't know. Um, which of the which of the characters on the show so far um, are actual characters? Do you wish was the president? Um, I'd like to decline to answer that. I think the obvious choice is Werner von Braun. Oh my God, he would be a great president. If you don't acknowledge it, you know you're just you know being a woke moralist. I mean, I, I do have an answer. I I think Margo. I think Margo is the one I would most prefer to have become she president. She is adept at blackmail. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she would get in a room with uh, Vladimir Putin and be like, you will surrender in Ukraine now. Or I'm going to call my friend at the New York Times. <laughs> and he's like, oh, shoot, the New York Times. Oh, no. Um, Margo's a good answer. She's a backstabbing cheat, but she knows how to play the jazz oh piano. So, like Bill Clinton, she will ascend quickly <laughs> to the presidency by appearing on the Arsenio Hall show. Yeah, so I guess I guess that wraps it up for our, our season one discussion. It's been a great season. Mike and I have had a lot of fun, and I'd like to thank special guest, Mr. Lars Emerson, for being here. You're welcome. It's, it's a pleasure. I love this show. Yeah, it's certainly a lot of fun to talk about. So, um, before we go, are there any uh, special projects or plugs we want to do any anyone anything in particular uh, mike or lars I'm, i mean ch- on? you can always find me on the post writer i got some some politics stuff going on yeah uh, no alternate history stuff but you can find me on letterboxd at lars emerson this episode will probably air in september but we will have our senate projections up um, yes and most of them should be up if not all of them should be up by the point by the time this episode airs um you know me you can find me at the post writer uh, letterbox at Ameramike, Twitter at mlevito. Yeah, and I contribute to the Post Rider, a great website uh, as well. Many, many articles about politics or entertainment, um, music. There was lots of music in this season. Mike, Mike brought it up. Um, I hope there's more great music to come now that we'll, we're entering the 1980s. <laughs> Everyone's favorite era of music, the unquestionable greatest decade for music to ever exist. <sighs> God. As Mike often says when he wakes up, I want my MTV. <laughs> <laughs> By God, I hope we get it. Yeah, so anyways, I'm on Twitter, at the Lewis Ryan, and you can find me on Letterboxd as well. 
Um, it's been a great season, everybody. We'll be back um, a little bit later for our discussion of For All Mankind Season 2. So hope you tune in for that. So we'll see you around, everyone. Take care. You can also let us know what you think about For All Mankind by emailing us at contact at com or following us on Twitter at thepostrider on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you very soon for Season 2. a fan of the Post Riders articles, podcasts, and projects, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. So once a week digest of everything we've worked on, what the site is up to, and other things we'd recommend each Monday. We don't believe in subjecting you to daily annoying emails, but we do believe in keeping our most passionate and loyal supporters in the loop on what we've been up to. We know how inconvenient and annoying it is to have your inbox flooded with constant reminders and useless material. That's why we run a curated weekly newsletter that gives you a once a week scoop. New subscribers help us know how many people are reading and listening to our work and want to hear more from us. So go to thepostwriter.com newsletter to sign up now.